Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Emily Fennick. She is the head of marketing at a company called Spinach. She's a seasoned B2B marketing leader with 15 years of experience in brand marketing, product marketing, and customer acquisition. And most interestingly, her career has spanned across a lot of different industries and companies. And something I'm excited to be able to dig into is talking about the difference between working at your global Fortune 500 type companies all the way to your VC-backed early stage startups. She's currently the head of marketing at Spinach.io. It's an early stage startup that's backed by companies like Zoom and Y Combinator, where she's building go-to-market strategy from the ground up. Emily, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have you here. Talk to me about your journey. You've mentioned before we started recording, just like this transition from going from big companies to small companies. Like, What are some of the considerations there when thinking about the work environment and the culture that you want to be in? Yeah, absolutely. So working at larger companies across industries ranging from scientific research to typography to tech insurance. So really a wide variety of types of companies. But the one thing that they all had in common was I've been throughout my career attracted to big projects. I like white space. I like creating things and I like building things from the ground up within those organizations. So when I was approached by Spinach, by the founders of that company, I mean, how much more white space does it get than building a company from the ground up? I was deeply curious about the process and the experience of that. And I thought, you know, why not give it a shot? So I've been at Spinach for about a year, building their go-to-market strategy. And yeah, I've made a lot of observations about the differences between enterprise and early stage startups. Yeah, I've done a similar journey. I've spent time at a Fortune 100, almost nine years there, large companies with thousands of employees. And what's interesting is like when you get to that small early stage startup, there's so many differences in like the type of person that is likely to be successful because yeah. in the larger company, everything was always so clearly defined. There was mm-hmm. always either a person or a department or a specific level of like depth. Whereas in the startup, I think being comfortable with ambiguity and also being comfortable with not having an answer yeah. is one of the big traits that I've seen. Like some people make the switch and it's just like really hard to be able to adapt to. Yeah, it takes a special type of person to be successful in a startup. I mean, you have to be able to balance strategic thinking with doing. If you don't like doing, don't join a startup. That's probably my number one piece of advice because you have to be able to do both. You need executors, but you also need big thinkers. And that's sort of what all the employees on the team at Spinach have in common. You're right about that. I don't think you'd last very long if you also weren't flexible. I think when you're at a startup, you have to make, you're not scaled. You have to make some very strategic big bets, run at those big bets, but be very diligent about pivot, change your mind. You can't get too attached to any single process or any single channel for too long. Yeah. That's one of the things that I love about early stage companies is that in bigger companies, when your culture isn't great, there's always this essence of like, there's really a problem over there and somebody should do something about yeah, it. Yeah. And in the early stage startup, you could potentially be sitting in a room with everybody, whether that's a Zoom room or like physically in the same room. 
And it's like, there is no them. There, it's us. If something's broken or a process doesn't exist, somebody in this room needs to build it. Absolutely. And that was a conversation that was very sort of transparent from the very beginning. And the founders themselves had already experienced that several times. But yeah, and there's very little delegating and there is nowhere to hide, right? If a process or something is broken, you have to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the things that you think that enterprise companies, larger kind of scaled out companies can actually learn from startups? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the companies themselves, but like marketers, since this is Destination CMO, I just think what my past enterprise marketer self could learn from who I'm becoming is just one thing is about asynchronous work. I do think that once you have joined this, you know, we have huge goals, huge ambitions, like most startups do and limited resources. So how you spend your time becomes like one of the most important focus areas for Mm -hmm. me as a marketer, spending time in meetings is not the best use of time. And so we sort of lean more on asynchronous work. So sending things, Slack messaging, instead of having a meeting where you have to sit down and go through a slide deck, it takes time to create that slide deck. It takes time from everybody to coordinate calendars, takes time to then share something that could have been read (laughs) offline in about five minutes. I've just become so aware of how much time gets wasted with some of these more traditional synchronous working styles you know, of prepare for the meeting, prepare the slide where, schedule the meeting, present the meeting, collect feedback, follow up. Some of that I've noticed can be done in about 10 minutes. Organize your thoughts in a Notion doc, record your thoughts in a Loom, share it on Slack. If you need to have a discussion, have a discussion. Most of the time you realize that you don't. (laughs) Yeah, I actually had an example of that earlier this week where I was building out a funnel, defining metrics in that funnel, had sent a meeting invite with the pre-read in there. And that morning, as I woke up and I was like looking at my calendar, I realized, wait, this really doesn't need to be a meeting. And I canceled the meeting. I sent out the Notion doc in Slack to the people that I would have been meeting with. And before the meeting would have even started, like the feedback was already in the Notion doc and the revisions were already done. And it was almost one of those moments where I had to like catch myself because that meeting creep can be really real if everybody doesn't kind of check themselves along the way. I've also seen in asynchronous work, the opposite happen, where there's times where a Slack conversation could go on forever, where it's like, oh my gosh, like we need to just talk and take this conversation out of Slack. So I think there's an art in moving things to asynchronous, but also knowing when the right time and place is to bring that back to a live conversation which sometimes could just be as simple as like using the new huddle feature in Slack, which is like one of my new favorite features to be able to just like quickly jump into a huddle inside of a channel. Yeah, we actually spent one of our first summits, we get together in person quarterly, sort of defining that. Cause I think that's another piece of advice is if you do want to experiment with asynchronous work and see if it helps you or just your team save time, you have to be intentional about it. So to your point, like we spent a lot of time in that summit documenting how we work making some commitments and some agreements about it. And also going into it, like ready to pivot. We do instant retros on processes. So instead of, again, waiting for the meeting, it's like you share your feedback in real time. Like, is this working or is it not working? But some of the rules that we put in place were, you know, don't share emotional information on Slack, right? Like if a thread starts going on for too long, like call it. Clearly you need to touch base in person for a moment. But for the most part, it works pretty seamlessly. Yeah. What should marketers or marketing teams like be mindful of as they think about this. Actually, let's take a step back and define asynchronous work and then talk about the considerations of going into 
more of these asynchronous styles. So when I think of asynchronous work, I think about work that happens less real time, meaning that not everything necessarily has to be a meeting. And kind of another outcome of asynchronous work that I think of is that you're not publishing or putting out like half-baked thoughts, meaning that if you have an idea, you're kind of more flushing out that entire idea into potentially like a notion doc, which doesn't have to be a fancy thing. Yeah. It could be a bunch of bullet points with like thoughts combined, but you might be thinking through instead of just an idea for a campaign, mapping out like what is the channel, what could be the example of the messaging, maybe even a sketch of an early sketch of like what creative could look like. And you're putting that out there for people to react to almost like a half-baked product mm -hmm. before finishing it, as opposed to real-time work I think of as like somebody has an idea and before they even do any work, it's already out in Slack and you're trying to get other people to react to it. And those other people may or may not be thinking about that thing and that distraction may or may not even be a helpful distraction yeah. for them. So I kind of think of that as like this transition to asynchronous. What do you think of it as? The most simple definition of async and sync is just it's a function of time, right? Like anything that is shared asynchronously, the recipient of that information can consume that information at any point that they choose. It's flexibility. And synchronous means anyone that you would like to share that information with can only consume that information when you align in the same space at the same time, right? And so if we think about these trends to moving towards more hybrid working styles, I hear a lot of executives say that they care about flexibility. I think the ultimate flex is that allowing people to produce and consume their work on their own time. What that empowers your people to then do is, let's say that you are very productive at six o'clock in the morning and you want to share ideas. Who's going to take a meeting with you at 6 a.m.? No one. So you can prepare your ideas, share them. And then when I'm most productive at, say, hypothetically, the afternoon, I can consume that and give you feedback. And you and I never have to really coordinate our calendars or get together, but you have shared very well thought out information. You didn't, hey, you know what, Emily, I want to talk to you about this. I see a lot of like brainstorming versus brain writing. Mm -hmm. like sometimes in meetings, people talk past each other. Their thoughts aren't crystallized. They haven't been documented. The meeting themselves aren't documented. So you kind of find yourself in this cycle of meetings where the only decisions or ideas are produced synchronously, it just slows things down. So yeah, yeah, I oftentimes too, I think about times in the past where somebody scheduled a meeting with me and they almost want like feedback off the cuff. Like they're showing me something and then two seconds later, they're asking okay. me, what do you think about it? And I've almost have learned that like my brain doesn't really work well that way. Mine doesn't either. The ability to be able to digest something, whether I'm like self-consuming it or whether somebody's actually walking me through it. And then after that, it's really in between downtime, going on a walk, like yes, literally sleeping on it, like the next day, like something will come back a lot more clear to me. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the power of asynchronous work is that some people, their brains do work that way, whereas others mm -hmm. like might have that instant off the cuff reaction to it. But I know my best work usually comes after reflecting for it at least a yeah. little bit. Also, um, that's something I, yeah, I hadn't considered because I think it does sort of level the playing field a little bit too. If you've ever been in an organization where you do an Enneagram or like a DISC assessment, the main yeah. takeaway of those is that everybody's a little bit different, right? And like you'd never ask someone who's a C, those analytical type people within your organization to give feedback immediately. They will freak out, you know, like 
I need a moment to process and to collect information. Whereas someone like me, who's very decisive, sure, I'm great in meetings. You ask me a question, I can probably make a decision, but I'd probably make a better decision yeah. if you gave me a moment to consume the information. And if you took the time to package up information that was more consumable, does that make sense, right? Like it's, it's sort of both. Yeah, and a lot of this work kind of started out from Amazon's philosophy of their six pager for anybody yeah. who's listening. Amazon does this thing where like a classic Amazon meeting is a department might need to make a major decision or a department or function needs to brief like other departments outside of their own on you know an upcoming change. And they have something that's called a six pager and six pager is basically what you think it is. It's a document that's six pages long, usually single spaced font size, a minimum size 10. You can't play with the margins too much to try to get extra space. And you're really trying to be able to condense information so that it's easily digestible. And what I love about the six pager is it's written in a way where you don't have to have any context about the company or about the department or about the function. So it's written in a way where even if it's not your area, in theory, if you're reading it, you should understand what the six pager is about and kind of the considerations, pros and cons of a particular decision. And a lot of the times it'll walk through like the current state of the business, what the headwinds are in the business, kind of why a change needs to occur. And then it'll position two to three options of different changes. And in an hour long meeting, you start out with a room of people essentially reading this six pager. And then after that, you jump essentially straight into questions and discussion. And I had an opportunity to actually do this true to its form recently, post-pandemic, where I wrote a six-pager with a three-year marketing strategy, shared it with a group of stakeholders where nobody in the room, including my manager, had read it beforehand. And so I tried to do it, handed out the papers. Everybody took notes on the papers. You're supposed to take back the papers and all of their notes and fold that into your next version which I found out is really hard to do because of reading everybody else's handwriting. So th there were definitely parts of me that like craved having the comments like back in a Google doc instead of on physical sheets of paper. But it did, number one, it was really neat not to have to present for 15 minutes at the beginning of the meeting, which was really great. And then the second part is it was really great to be able to have everybody go through the full strategy before picking apart with questions. Because a lot of the times in meeting, the questions that you're asking could be questions that are already answered later on. And so this allows somebody to kind of like fully consume it end to end. Yet at the same time, it took forever to write it. And the average six pager, I think I read somewhere on like a former Amazon employee's blog, like the average six pager takes like 25 to 28 hours or something like that to write. So it is a very time-consuming exercise at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be smarter than Amazon as an entity, but if I had to take that process and improve it for myself or my team, I would just say, I'm sure they have their reasons why it's six pages, but I mean, if you wanted to just sort of take it down a notch, right? All right. Last that I heard from you, it was if I could improve on the process for myself personally, organize, start by organizing it in a Notion doc. Yeah, just it doesn't necessarily need to be a six pager. That's how Amazon does it. But I think the bigger takeaway is organizing your thoughts before getting everyone together, making sure that what you have to share is is well organized. And I think it's important to point out that it's a document and not a deck. I think it's kind of funny, but I think so much of internal work is presented in PowerPoints and PowerPoints put a lot of pressure on non-designers to make the information 
somehow, how much time is wasted adding drop shadows to graphs? Do you know what I'm, things like that, right? Where I don't think any charts should ever have drop shadows. So. Just the dumbest formatting things. <laughs> I don't know if you ever found yourself tinkering and being like, oh gosh. But also my, I think it, my hypothesis is that it biases people towards designs that are slides that are slick versus ideas that are sound, right? And if you take it out of the PowerPoint, you put it in writing, the idea has to stand in black and white. Talking about marketing specifically, you've mentioned to me in the past how it's baffling that so many marketers or a large percentage of marketers really don't know the audience or the persona that they're marketing to. Why should you start there? But how did Spinach approach getting to know its ideal early users? And like, what does that look like bringing that to life? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. I think at companies of all sizes, whether I'm in the organization, talking to friends, sometimes you hear this phrase like, oh, well, our product could help anyone. And I think if you approach it that way, your product could help anyone, you're actually probably destined to help no one. And when I first joined Spinach, what I was sort of, one of the reasons I was so excited about it is that the founders were very well aware of that. So a lot of tools out there, I should probably stop and explain what Spinach is for. So Spinach is a tool that helps development teams run more effective daily standups. It's a big part of, for anyone who's worked with developers, a big part of their agile workflows are to connect as a team on a daily basis and align on their plan for the day. So Spinach sort of helps take the facilitation out of that and automates that process. So a daily standup is one type of meeting. And what our founders could have easily done when they set out to build Spinach they could have said, well, if it can help a development team run a more efficient meeting, it could help any meeting. And we've actually seen a lot of tools in the marketplace who's, who do that, right? Like we're going to help anyone and everyone run a meeting, any kind of meeting. But I think what happens then is that you get too broad. You're not focused on very specific needs on specific users. And you sort of end up with like a flat product that kind of helps, but kind of doesn't. So how we developed sort of our ideal customer profile was started by going really, really narrow and really, really deep with a very specific audience. And even within that audience, went even deeper to develop our ICP. So if you think about the members of a development team, you have designers and scrum masters, tech leads, product managers, and the engineers themselves. When we went to build Spinach, we could have said, let's just build it for the needs of everyone on that team. Um, but instead, what we did is we used the, have you heard of Superhumans product market fit approach? Have you heard of this before? No, tell me um, more. So what we did is we reached out to the base of users. When we start, we got a, a decent base of users. We reached out to them and said, if you could no longer use spinach, how would you feel? I'd be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed. And what you learn from that is who is getting the most value from your product. And it was so amazing to see that overwhelmingly, it was the tech leads and the product managers, the people who are often stuck facilitating the daily standup, who got the most value from spinach, the engineers, the designers, QA team they got less value from spinach. And so that really helped us focus our messaging, focus our channels, and focus our entire product strategy around how can we continue to lean into the people who already see the value of what we're trying to build and really amplify that versus sort of getting spun out on, oh, but an engineer might not like this or an engineer might not like that feature. It really sort of helped us crystallize our roadmap and our go-to-market strategy. And so it's an excellent framework. If you have any sort of base of users, just ask them, ask a group of people if they'd be disappointed if they could no longer use you and see if you can gather any insights from who's getting the most value from what you're doing. It does not surprise me at all that Superhuman uses that question because Superhuman is like one of those companies. I think Superhuman and OXO 
are like two companies where if their products just like magically disappeared, I'd be like, oh my gosh, but drying rack of like for my dishes, it's got so many different features and I love it. But yeah, and I love that the example is something that is a tangible good and not just a digital good. Because if I remember correctly, that survey, the product market fit survey was made by Sean Ellis at Growth Hackers. And a lot of marketers oftentimes get pushed towards using NPS as a measurement. And NPS is, is just simply, would you recommend this to a family member or friend? which is inherently different than would you be sad? Would you be disappointed if you could no longer use it? Because just because you, I would recommend Uber to a friend, but if Uber disappeared, there'd be Lyft that pretty much to fill its spot right away, at least for me. And so like to get really strong product market fit, it has to be somebody would be either somewhat disappointed or very disappointed if your product disappears. Like that's when you know you have super strong fit. And if I remember correctly, if 40% of users say that they would be very disappointed, then that's when you know you have a very crystal clear product market fit in the channel that, that you're advertising or in the channel that you're going to market with. So I, I love that as an example. And it also just helps you focus, right? Because here's the thing. If someone's not going to be disappointed if you go away, then just kind of forget about them. And that's what they recommend. It really helps with our user sessions, right? When we recruit for user feedback sessions, We don't talk to the people who are not going to be disappointed if they can't use spinach. We talk to the people sort of in the middle, right? Like they're somewhat disappointed, like what types of features or what Mm -hmm. types of value are you not getting that could potentially move you into the bucket of someone who would be very disappointed. And also when you're developing your messaging, you talk to the people who would be very disappointed and you go, can you articulate in your own words why you would be very disappointed? And from that, I got such good messaging So instead of me trying to create the language, it's in their own words and it just, it comes off as more authentic. Yeah. And it's always amazing to me and all the startups that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that a lot of the times, like the features that you think are going to be big hits are not actually the ones that drive the stickiness when you go and you actually talk to the people who are using the product. And so that's to your point, like one of the things that I love about it, because if the landing page or the marketing is solely based off of what the product managers or the engineers think are going to be the features that are the most popular, that may or may not actually line up with what people researching a solution actually feel like is a pain point and which feature is actually solving their pain point. Yes. I will say another lesson that enterprise marketers can learn from startup is just, I think what you're getting at here is sort of like a fail fast, right? I think sometimes in bigger organizations, what happens is you have an idea or a hypothesis and it might be very well rooted in what your customers tell you they will do or tell you what they want. But then when you actually go and execute that, I mean, what happens is you develop a prototype, it goes through meetings and meetings and meetings and iterations and everybody has to put their hands on it and bless it. And then it sees the light of day. And then you realize oh, this isn't exactly what, you know, it's not delivering the results that we thought it would, to your point. And something that we've done at Spinach is that we ourselves doing that. Even in a small startup, it was like every single person needed to have an opinion about the feature we were launching and the exact language we were using. But it was like, like stop Kool-Aiding it endlessly or dog fooding it, whatever. Get it into the hands of your users as quickly as you possibly can, because that's the fastest way to learn. And if you don't see the results that you thought you would, it's okay. Don't get attached. Drop it, pivot, move on. And I think what I've experienced myself in larger enterprises, just this 
the longer you Kool-Aid something and the longer you touch it and feel it and perfect it internally, the more like emotionally attached you become to this feature or this product launch. And then when it doesn't do well, everybody's just, you know, gutted. And so from a motivational perspective, fail fast, don't get attached. I completely agree with that. I mean, Lean Startup is like the book that really drove mm -hmm. this methodology. And one of the things that I always remember from that book is the story about TurboTax and how every single year TurboTax, for anybody who doesn't know, is software that you use to do your personal taxes. But they have one Black Friday Super Bowl season that literally happens around the same time as the Super Bowl. And their entire kind of year's revenue for TurboTax is going to be reliant on how well they do in that tax season. And so like old school TurboTax used to build, spend literally like seven months building a marketing campaign that ran for five months. And when they switched to be leaner and switched to be nimble, where they could actually pivot week by week throughout their Super Bowl season, their campaigns ended up being better because they yeah. could pivot and not wait until the end of the campaign to take their learnings to be able to wait until the next year to be able to improve. So I think that's absolutely a really solid piece of advice. My big surprise as a marketer is I'm really bad at picking the winners is what I've learned. Yeah. And what I mean by that is in every single, regardless of what type of role you're in, what type of company you're working at, what type of industry you're working at, like there's always going to be options that are presented to a team to be able to give feedback on. And I've learned throughout my career that I oftentimes don't pick the winners. And I think that's another reason why like being open-minded and allowing experiments to occur. Like I love it when I've proven wrong yeah. because that means that we are able to capture those learnings and we're going to implement it into kind of our long-term strategy. Whereas like I, like everybody else, I occasionally I'll make a bad call and the iteration that I think is going to be a winner isn't always a winner, but I would much rather be able to learn that quickly without spending a ton of money, without spending a ton of time, and then incorporate that into future strategy versus seeing it in a meeting or seeing it as an option and dismissing it and never even learning. Yeah. I mean, the best way to accelerate that is if, if you ever find yourself debating something in your team or in your company, and you know that there's a way you could get it into the hands of real users, just stop everything. <laughs> Yeah. Do that instead. Right. It's just yeah. so much more efficient. And I laugh at your example because I am also notoriously bad for not being able to pick winners. I mean, I love A-B testing and I'm always like, oh, this headline is just clearly better articulation of what we do. And then I'll be like, I'll be darned. Doesn't perform as well. So, but that's also why I've learned to not debate it and not stress it and get it into the hands of users and just test it. Just find out. Yeah, totally. Totally. I think the exercise too for experimentation is that sometimes people can get in the weeds of experiment documentation. And right now we're going through this as we think about our product-led onboarding flows and things like that. But writing down what you think will happen is such a useful exercise because I think sometimes people also go into experiments with a let's just see what happens attitude instead of if this happens, if this number is something that we see, we know we've made a bad decision. But if the number looks like this, we know we made a good decision. I think sometimes people experiment not knowing what they would celebrate and when they would pivot. And I just think that that's something that I would encourage teams to do too, is like, don't overdo it, don't over document, but just take a second, write down your hypothesis and what do you think is going to happen? And then see, and then it gives you a little bit more perspective going into it, gives you something to look for. I completely agree with that. And I think the other one is knowing when to call the test. Yes, there's statistically relevant, like statistically quantifiable test results. 
But unless you're marketing clinical trials, like a lot of the work that we do doesn't necessarily have to be to that rigor. So if you see a test like heavily leaning in a direction, maybe we let the test keep running, but we already start building our plans for what we're going to do if a test ends that way. And so we don't end up losing the rest of the week or another two weeks or however we're running that test for. We can start making plans for the next step, still let the test finish. But then as soon as it finishes and it confirms what we already think, then we can roll straight into the next test. So it wouldn't be destination CMO if I didn't ask you the question. For somebody who wants to grow into a head of marketing role, what advice would you have for somebody who wants to get stronger in their career and kind of grow towards that direction? Yeah, I guess I'd offer two pieces of advice. One is for, I would say, women in particular, and one is for anyone. So I'll start with the one for anyone. I would just say, if you want to grow in your career, just be careful what you say yes to earlier in your career, right? So let's say you have a anyone who's ambitious enough to want to be a CMO is probably going to be someone who can hustle, someone who takes on projects, someone who delivers, right? And that will get noticed. So if you're being noticed because you can deliver, people will start asking you to deliver across a wide variety of projects, whether it's a digital transformation, a brand transformation, persona work. And so you'll get introduced to these things. It's really easy to just for especially ambitious people to just say yes to those things. Like give it to me, white space, I'll take it on. So I guess what I would encourage people to do is to think about what kind of marketer you want to be, what types of projects really reflect on the types of projects that give you joy, not to be corny, but like you're not going to be able to be successful if you're not excited about what you're doing. So think about that and then try to be more intentional about what you say yes to. You do not have to say yes to everything. Other opportunities will come along if you are talented and you hustle and you work hard, because if you're not careful, what can happen is you can take on all these different types of roles, but you might not be building that niche expertise that will make you happier and more successful in the long run. Yeah, really great advice in terms of purposeful thinking about and just taking a step back and being intentional about those career moments and the direction that you want to head in. Emily, for somebody who wants to follow you or stay connected with you, where's the best place to connect? Right here on LinkedIn. It's Emily Osma maiden name, Emily Elkins. But yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to meet you and talk with you. I did have the career advice for women though. Do you mind if I sneak that in here at the end? Yeah, go for it. The career advice for women, particularly mothers or parents, is get yourself a support system. I think coming out of the pandemic, it reminded everybody that you need a support system. You can't do it all and you can't do it all all by yourself and you shouldn't expect yourself to. And so I couldn't have gotten to where I was in my career if I didn't have a strong support system of family, friends, and caregivers. So make sure that as you develop your life and as you develop your career, make sure you have that. It'll change your life. Emily, thank you so much for joining me. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famfan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.